Where were we? Oh, do you like my chest hair, by the way? It's, uh, it's magnificent. Alluring? No. <laughs> Why are you holding your microphone today? You know, I kind of wanted to get this game show host vibe going. Okay. Okay. So for when we have people around us, I can just like hold the mic to them and be like, hey, tell us about that thing that's really cool in your life. I know you people can't, you can't use that as B-roll because people can't see. You can't see how ridiculous you are right now. Yeah. Look, no B-roll today. Hello and welcome to Active Listeners with Mike and Shane. Each week we interview guests about their goals and expectations as artists, their artistic expression, and the all-around nature of the artist's lifestyle. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Is there a de facto artist lifestyle? Well, that's one of the things we try to uncover. Performers, visual artists, and musicians, Mike and I would like to talk to you about what you do, why you do it, and what that art means for your community. Please follow Active Listeners on Facebook or the Twitters and join in on the conversation. Peace. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Active Listeners Podcast. I'm Mike. And I'm Shane. And today uh, we are going to talk to uh, playwright Monica Cross about Monica's playwriting, her particular style of writing in just a little bit. Uh, But first, Shane, how are you doing today? You know, I'm awake. I'm here. I'm living the dream. Someone's dream. Someone's dream. Someone Look, you can't ask me how I'm doing because that's just going to put me out on a tangent and you told me I had to be focused today. Well, I think I, the word I used was tight to minimize editing. But uh, yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Because I have a real world thing happening today, but you do. that's I mean, not completely most of us, relevant. Most of us do. Okay, they well, I don't every day. <laughs> Anyway, yes, we are having Monica Cross on. I'll bring it back. I'll be focused. Monica is a friend of mine and has been doing playwriting for a number of years now. And her style is focused primarily in what seems like adaptation, which seems fun because that's also the style I write in. Uh, I tend to take existing works and morph them or show a different side of the curtain. Uh, For example, I'm currently working on uh, an adaptation for uh, Caesar, and that's going to be super fun. Mike, what kind of writing do you do? I don't. At all? I think I tried to write one. Well, that's I guess that's not entirely true. Uh, I am currently helping to adapt a play that I was in years ago into a screenplay form. Um, Thirsty Elephants was written by a former guest, Brian Sheldon. But that's that's a project that we've been working on since pandemic started and have no real like concrete plan for. We just, every once in a while, hop in on the shared drive file and mess around with it. Um, It's actually in a really good place. It's definitely, I think, I think it's ready for a table read. And I mean, the only play I've ever tried to write was a couple of years ago when I got the half-brained idea that I was going to write the uh, swashbuckling adventure story about how Othello and Iago met. Yes, please. And so maybe maybe that'll be something uh, that gets finished in the future. 
uh, maybe crowdsourcing crowdsourcing that writing from other members of Kemp's would be a good idea for that one. Yeah, and also I don't think writing necessarily needs to be uh, focused in a theatrical a theatrical scene uh, because <laughs> I've been dying to tell this story. <laughs> so one of our good oh. friends, uh, Mike Sincora, I'm gonna just call him out. Uh, decided, shout out Mike Sincora. Mike, shout out to Mike Sincora. I said something to him the other day about one of my very unpopular Shakespeare opinions. And that is that in Measure for Measure, I believe Lucio dies at the end of that play. And everyone's instant gut reaction is, no, no, no. The Duke lets him off, et cetera. So what did I do? I literally wrote an essay. It's like a three-page essay <laughs> about why <laughs> I think Lucio dies at the end of that play. And it starts at the beginning of the play, and it has to do with... Uh, pronouns and referring to yourself as a singular entity versus a pluralized entity. Oh, we were talking about like the the heat death of his ego or something? Like, what's... Well, kind of, in a sense that the king or the ruler or the prince is given power. So when he refers to his power, it tends to be in that royal we. It tends to be a pluralized thing. But there's also the character that the Duke is playing that is a singularized entity in the world. Anyway, the point of the story is that I wrote an essay at 10 in the morning because one of my friends disagreed with one of my opinions and <laughs> I needed to put it down on paper. And yeah, that sounds just, about right. Yeah, Sounds about right. But it also made me think of those parties people throw where they will get a group of like five or six people together and do PowerPoints for one another, but on just ridiculous topics. <laughs> oh man. You know, you know, it's great too about writing, even if it's just for fun, is it seems to attract uh like a lot of people that want to write and read other people's writings and give their input and I and that's that's pretty interesting to me because it's kind of like the other form of storytelling which is like verbal where there you write something for for it to be shared for it to be seen for it to be read for it to be heard it's just a, a continuation of my fascination uh, nice alliteration. <laughs> You're blowing my mind over here. Uh, with my fascination of storytelling and, and, and the human need to share information. And writing, I mean, that's really what opened up, you know, the future, opened up humanity to the modern world is writing things down, being able to share written information and the knowledge of someone else sans their presence. And you know, it's confusing now because we are moving away from hard copies of things and moving into a very ones and zeros digitalized presence and foil hat on or not, you know, there are things that could happen where that is wiped out and that is no longer in existence, you know. Or... Well, I mean, think about this. What if all of a sudden, uh, for whatever reason, every book on the planet went up in flames 
I'm or still not over the library few, of Alexandria, okay? Or or maybe just a few key libraries, right? Like, so some of the biggest, most prestigious libraries in the world have some of the only collections of certain works. I would say that a digital copy of a thing has more staying power because you can't corrupt every computer and maybe it's smarter to, to, to keep things in multiple locations on multiple servers. Sure. Then you avoid that De- type of Decentralizing thing. the knowledge in exactly, a way. Exactly, exactly. Oh. Yeah. I don't know. I think, I think maybe, I think maybe digital uh, record keeping is a, is a bit more uh, permanent if we're allowing that information to reach as many people as possible, as many hard drives as we can. Yeah, I remember one of my professors who we've had on, um, he tells me to call him Paul, but I forever call him Dr. Menzer. <laughs> uh, shout out. But he once said something to the effect of the Google document that he keeps open that he writes on every day is just in a modern day endless scroll. Yeah. And so that's always sort of stuck with me as you have endless paper what are you going to do with it endless paper it sounds like a, a product like like a, you're going to see an ad on your phone later for something called endless paper because your phone heard you talking about it <laughs> and there's of, the dark side of technology yeah i was going to say speaking of our phones is this the <laughs> shameless plug portion of our intro sure uh shameless plug portion of our intro would be if you would like to follow us on a daily basis uh you can now do that uh via our tiktoks if you are on the tiktoks as the older people say some uh there's there's a defense for staying off of tiktok i think there's an interesting dynamic on tiktok of not being able to hide as easily and it's one of the things i always disliked about Twitters and Facebooks. It was easy to hide behind a screen. On TikTok, I can see you. Yeah, if you're a creator, you can see a creator. But I think like it's still it still does it still does uh invite some of the other aspects of social media that we dislike. Cut that part out when you because we're <laughs> plugging our TikToks. Section. Stay Jeez. out of your t- comment section. After our glowing uh, recommendation for TikTok, if you would like to find us on there, uh, you can do so by punching in at A-L-P-O-D underscore Mike or at the same place underscore Shane. <laughs> at the same place. Yes. At the same place. No. A-L-P-O-D. <laughs> underscore Mike, AL pod, underscore Shane. And, you know, we I are running very different TikToks right now, I think. And I think it's indicative of our uh, off podcast personalities. So if you want some insight into how we work, at least, on, you know, on the level that we're willing to show the world, uh, head on over to that. Also, if you'd like to become a patron, head over to our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash active listeners pod and check that space out. Thank you to our one subscriber that we currently have. And uh, yeah, so I think we're going to go ahead and move into our interview with Monica Cross. Hello, listeners, and welcome back. And today our guest is going to be the one and the only Monica Cross. 
Hello, Monica Cross. Please do us a favor, introduce yourself, let us know your pronouns, and give us one of those fun facts that'll spark our conversation forward. Yes. Uh, so my name is Monica Cross. Uh, I live in Gainesville, Florida. My pronouns are she, her, and um, I have been writing plays uh, actually as long as you have known me, Shane, um, because I started writing plays at Mary Baldwin when I took a class. Uh, they had a playwriting class my first year. So, um, but I really haven't, I, I have really started started playwriting uh, a lot since the pandemic began. And uh, as Monica touched on, I do know uh, Monica from our school days. And we actually, I got to assistant direct under your tutelage. Uh, we did Psychosis 448, it was called, yes? 448 Psychosis by Sarah Kane. Um, I knew I I'd flip it, yeah. <laughs> I definitely like recommend that play with very, very heavy content warnings. Um, so that's how I suggest people listen to Bo Burnham. It's like, I want you to listen to this new inside album, but like, just do it with caution. Theater should provoke and, you know, instigate. So I think it's a perfect recommendation. I thought back to that play today, actually. I thought about the scene with all of the, the numbers that are just mm -hmm. sort of scrawled across the page. And I remember the initial idea I threw at you and I was like, what if we painted them all on the ground and glow in the dark numbers? And I don't know why that popped in my head today, but uh, yeah. I was thinking about this interview and I was like, those were good times. Those were good times. And actually I, um, I've been looking forward to this because I've been wanting to tell you uh, that I use the exercise that you gave the cast um, of, of putting the rehearsal in a box and leaving it. Um, I use that very often now, particularly with heavier uh, subject matter in my work. And recently, before the pandemic, I was working with some students on a, a very heavy play and I gave them that. I walked away because they were, it was, there was another faculty director. Um, and when I came back, they were like, okay, we got to do doors. And I was like, what's doors? And they had expanded it into this entire exercise where like they, they everyone just stands in the room and opens a door, walks through it, and closes it behind them, and now they do the play. That's so cool. Yeah, it was really wonderful to watch them make it their own, um, and that was an exercise that I learned when you and I were working together. I mean, this interview is over. Thank <laughs> you. Good day. Vindication. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. Stepping out, as it's you know commonly called, is super important stage it's it's kind of impossible to expect yourself to be able to forget all that unless you're doing something to shake it off i guess film it wouldn't be a bad a bad exercise either i'm probably more so in film because you have you're forced yeah. to repeat it so many times I, i've heard right. it also called de-rolling you know you take on the role and then you de-roll mm. um yeah oh <laughs> not where my head is, yeah. but sure <laughs> so let's get let's get into it then uh so you mentioned you've been writing so when you mentioned so what like eight years what's the most fun thing for you to write like what do you enjoy writing mm. most i mostly write riffs off of existing literary works science fiction usually a combination of the two that's fair <laughs> What sort of genre of, of science fiction do you tend to lean towards the dystopian future or the little more fantasy? 
I would definitely say that I'm much more of a soft sci-fi person. Um, I really love hard science fiction, but when I write, uh, I, I recently wrote a 10-minute sci-fi noir where the the premise is that this moon has been stolen and the from around this planet and sort of the revelation is that it's a living moon and so oh. it like couldn't be owned um so it wasn't stolen it was liberated nice. um so like that sort of thing is <laughs> is a little bit more my style like things that are are maybe fantasy maybe science fiction but um definitely live you in also some get other that space. like punch of message at the end too though <laughs> yeah yeah i i really am interested in writing plays about people sort of discovering who they are and finding out things about themselves um so i have a lot of robot plays I have both a play in which like there is a robot that is Shakespeare, which we'll get into, but then I also have a play about a robot that recites Shakespeare. And these are two very different plays. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so what is your process when you're writing these plays in, in the sense that you say you write, wrote this 10 minute play, did you write it and that just exists now? Or do you write something and then keep, attacking it for months or years I even after you've done it on stage I draft and I redraft and and at a certain point I call it kind of done-ish sometimes that's after the first production sometimes that's after like the third production it, I keep drafts of everything so that I can go back to it and what I actually do is I color code my drafts um I, I You're such a nerd. I, well, I, it's so I good. have some processing problems, right? So I don't sure. read quickly. So when I write, I want to be able to read my own work in a way that is useful to me. So as I'm writing, like the first draft is just, you know, sort of black text on white page, but then like the next draft will be color coded red and only the words that I've changed will be colored red in the font so so by the time you get to like draft 12 or 14 it's just this like you'll have like an entire scene that's green because i just added that super late in the process and then you'll have like three magenta words in it because i decided that i didn't like the way like a word hit um and so i'll change just that one word so it, it really is this process of kind of like chipping away at it um until it sounds the way i want and is it a is it a combination of like deciding what this character would say and also like what sounds good i'm a very sort of lyrical writer um mm. that's a comment that people often make about my work is that it is very literary or it's very lyrical or um i had a review of my first full length play that said that it was unabashedly literate. Um, I don't know if that was supposed to be a compliment <laughs> or not, but I'm going to take it. Uh, <laughs> I would take it as one. Yeah, yeah. That's a difficult one to, to, to decode. So for me, the process of writing is about 
almost employing and oftentimes quite literally employing the the sort of rhetorical training that we received at Mary Baldwin back into things. So like, oh, I think that this person is, who is very angry about this is going to um, repeat the first word like or first and I this and I that and I you know like yeah, yeah. um or or like let's throw in some like anaplosis because they're like building a thing and of course um, yeah. <laughs> I always my head always goes to polyptaton it's just mm, my favorite and mm-hmm. I don't know why um uh, it's funny because I have this little play that uh, I've adapted off of Caesar and I want to show it to Mike and I'm just oh <laughs> yeah no I think that um sharing it is the scariest part but also the most rewarding particularly because that's it's very much so that diagram that that they've got on you know you see on Facebook every once in a while or whatever where it's like this is shit this is not this is shit it's great it's it's awful you know like that oh the graph, yeah, yeah. graph yeah. Of, of the process right um and and it is very much so that uh i i participated in something called end of play last april uh if you are interested in writing a play it's like nano remo but for uh playwriting and it happens in april I highly recommend it. Um, Is that digital or in, local to your area? No, it's uh, through the Dramatist Guild, but you don't have to be a Dramatist Guild member. Um, but I am. Um, and well, I mean, it, it, I will say it is far easier to join the Dramatist Guild than most people <laughs> expect. Um, all you have to have done, have, if you have like a play written, you send them a play that you wrote and you have like, that's their like lowest level of membership. And if you have a play that has been produced, that's like their highest level of membership. And um, like one single play produced there. I, I self-produced a play about four years ago and I was in um, just through a play. <laughs> like I sent them a poster um, and that was it. And so, and there's such a great resource. It is like, you know, there are dues and so forth, but like, because it is a guild, but um, there's such a great resource for, oh, suddenly someone asked me like to do my play and I have no idea how to put together a contract mm. so that they can pay me. Oh. And the Dramatist Guild helps with that. Oh, that's great. The Dramatist Guild is amazing. I can't say enough good things. I am currently their ambassador for the North Florida region. So that's fun. Disclose all your conflicts of interest now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I really love the stuff that they do. And so they put together End of Play. And because it's all been online, because they started it two years ago, right when the pandemic was beginning, um, they'd already had it planned, but then just everything moved online. And so for the month of April, almost like every day, there was like a two hour block where you could just like log into Zoom and see like other people typing away. You didn't say anything. You just kept everything mute and you just wrote on your own screen. That's Um, cool. That's actually, yeah. yeah. And like, I would say probably uh, a thousand or 1100 people uh, signed up to all write plays in the month of April um and so i i did that and then i was able to get a reading of my play 
with complete strangers um, through the Dramatist Guild from that project um, and like sending it out. I, I wrote a play in a month, sent it to them and then was like, oh no, what have I done? And- <laughs> this play now exists in the world. Yeah, it's real now, <laughs> other people have seen it. But it was also just lovely to hear it out loud and everyone was very supportive. And that's my big thing about playwriting is that like, A, use like Liz Lerman critical response, like feedback uh, uh, style stuff so that you're not like having really harsh criticism, but then also like people are just lovely and they give you really thoughtful feedback that makes your play better. Um, So share, please share. I was afraid you, I I was afraid you were going to come back to that point. Yes, my my sort of uh, ADHD brain is like, let's go on this really long loop, and then we'll come back. back we'll to the that makes for the yeah yeah. That makes come for back the to the interview. Honestly, <laughs> elaborate on a point and then get back to it, and you button it up real neat. <laughs> Keeps me on the hook though. I don't like it. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't like it. It happens a lot. He doesn't like it at all. <laughs> also, set up a reading. Zoom is great for that. You can just like. I, I've, I had um, a person that I met at a stage combat workshop who is currently waiting out the pandemic in Denmark, like join me on a Zoom call this past weekend because I needed to hear something read out loud at like 11 a.m. I saw your reach and... out on social media for that. I was so upset because Mike and I had a show that day. Well, I do that quite often. <laughs> so you said something that I... I picked up on and I'd like you to elaborate on the community of the dramatist guild, like, and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, it sounds like there's a little bit of a liberation within that community. So are you, do, is it harder for you to share your stuff with people that are close to you? Yeah. Um, I, since the pandemic began, I found a really lovely playwriting collective that exists exclusively online. And we um, got together just about a year ago and um, we've been meeting monthly since. um, And we put together writing challenges. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with the like Paula Vogel style, like Bake Off challenge. Um, We also... Uh, we recently did a genre swap. That's where I got, I got the sh- two genre, like we could pick one or the other that we received um, and, or we could combine them. And that's actually where the sci-fi noir yeah, why wouldn't 10-minute you play combine came those from. Two, was, if was... you had the option, right? <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and so with them, I feel like I can share anything, right? It's so warm. Um I've been in other groups where um, I once received uh, feedback uh, from a a woman in a playwriting group who was sitting in front of me um, after the reading of one of my plays and turned around and was like, Monica, why are all your characters such losers? <laughs> and I was like, well, are they? Because I base them off my friends. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair i was trying to write a play which i still have not successfully like gotten where i want it to mm-hmm. be um about like like that millennial stuckness i have no idea what you're talking about uh, i'm yeah. so motivated all the time <laughs> well like the just about not being where you thought you were um and or thought you would be where, and, where you were gonna be yeah yeah um 
so it's it's a play that I've probably rewritten from the ground up like four times um, and I'm quite, not quite happy with it yet but it was really funny to have that that feedback because um, also the person was not a millennial let's just yeah. put it that way um, <laughs> I mean but also I would argue that is not feedback if feedback is not productive you're just being a nudge sure yeah yeah and even um, if they were like Purp- you wrote them purposely as losers obviously there could have been and uh, and it seems like there was like an intentional intentionality behind how the characters are written yeah. i've seen tons of plays where the characters are losers yeah. so, like, honestly do you know how many boomers would call me a loser <laughs> well, yeah 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 um i i was living in sarasota for a time um and was part of a very lovely playwriting group there. Um, but because of the demographics in Sarasota, I was almost always the youngest person in the room. So I, I've seen a lot of plays that characterize millennials as um, Lazy? differently than the way that I would do it. <laughs> yeah. Let's just put it that way. That's <laughs> the polite way to say it. We'll take that. I don't often do polite, so. well and there's there's also got to be some fundamental generation to generation difference uh, you know between like how a baby boomer would write a play you know what I mean like there's there's the stylist but the life experience is completely different Um, not only the life experience for me again throws me right back to 448 because it's it's a formatting thing for me mm, partly mm. is you know, people of an older generation are going to write in such a traditional play format where, you know, you have one act or two acts or three acts, or you know, however many acts, and they're going to be broken into scenes and words are going to go down the left side of the page and one person's going to talk and then another person's going to talk. And, you know, theater's evolved. We're, we, yeah. we don't have to do that anymore. I recently got to take a class with Caridad Speech. Oh, lucky. Yeah. Uh, it was part of the uh, Kennedy Center Summer Playwriting Intensive um, that I got to participate in this summer. Uh, it was on Zoom this year, so that made it, made it um, a, little easier. a little easier to attend. And um, But she taught a class on non-traditional structure. And in the opening to that class, uh, she said, I don't like calling this non-traditional structure because there is a literary tradition for it. Sure, sure. And yeah, yeah. I was like, yes, oh, definitely. Um, <laughs> I, I just, I'm sorry, I recognized the name, but I, I had to look up a picture. I believe this person, I believe uh, Caridad came to Mary, Mary Baldwin. Baldwin. Yeah, I took a workshop with, with her. Uh, yeah. They were fantastic. Yeah, they're really great. Uh, Caridad is... Um, such an amazing person in terms of um the way that she approaches the work like in this class it was almost like a meditation into the writing and I just have these pages of uh, information that I have to go back and decipher in terms of like at one point we're we're in a room and then in another point we're like flying through the sky and just keep writing the same scene but now you're in a sky in the sky yeah. and 
and then like write a song. What is the song? Where does it come from? What you know? It's just like it's pretty spiritual. It's amazing. It's, yeah. Here's an image. Write about this image. Like oh, such a great great class. I really loved everything. You have about. a random prop, and you you know you found it in an old house. And how did you find it there? And what is inside of it? And it's so good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she actually um, part of it was like pick a place that you. I forget how she worded it, um, care about, know very well, one of those things. And somehow I ended up in um, Coffee on the Corner or, you know, by and by um, and, <laughs> and like writing a scene that takes place in that like hallway going back to yep. the, the beer garden in the back. So like I, I was writing a scene that was taking place in the hallway right uh it was really fantastic um here we are just um, throwing out a whole bunch of references to places that you know eh, stanton <laughs> virginia we went to college there we learned about shakespeare and stuff there was a place it's called fun. coffee People on the corner it. you're all caught up yeah yeah we're all caught up um <laughs> i mean if they didn't know what coffee on the corner was i, I mean very they probably don't place. listen to this show. Very <laughs> magical <to> say. place. <laughs> Made the um, best omelets. Wait, no, I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I I do not fancy myself any type of writer. Um, maybe uh, maybe maybe I, I could write some essays or something. But uh, <laughs> comic book or two. So, but if sure sure definitely even even then I'm I'm the reason why I'm not, I don't have anything published is because I don't like anything enough to publish it um just get it out so, there does monica have to re-get her speech <laughs> she, i guess so i guess so uh so but i can say like as a visual artist um one of the things that to always get better one of the things you should always do is finish every piece that you start hmm. even if you you get halfway through it and you lose all interest you hate it whatever is there a point where you say to yourself okay I gotta jump ship on this I gotta put it away or I gotta you know or you know what this is never gonna get done or do, or is it the same is do you force yourself to get to the end even if you're just kind of sh- struggling with the vision I definitely feel like um pandemic time and non-pandemic time have different responses um mm, because mm. when I was at home for three months straight with no contact with the outside world other than what happened on my computer screen, I finished everything I wrote um, and put them in boxes, never to be seen again. Um, (laughs) But I also, um, I do think that there is value in saving everything that I write. Um, And so I've got plays that I've started or, you know, gone back to years later, um, I am about three or four drafts into a play called Sleeping Beauty Isn't Going to Save You, which is a dystopian future um, where like fairy tales are like accepted as fact, um, as like history. Um, Okay. Uh, and so it's like when Disney finally takes over the world. <laughs> and... uh, it's well, the, the the thing is that there's a bunch of scavengers, and they they sort of tell mythology 
about mm, okay. like and so about how they got to this post-apocalyptic world and it oh, involves cool. being saved by um like snow white taking miners down into the, oh, the ruins of the cities nice. and um and bringing back you know the stuff that's going to get them into the city um the and new bible baby they find so cool. <laughs> they find a woman in a cryo tube and they think that she is sleeping beauty and <gasps> so then hence the title but um i incorporated as one of the backstories for one of the characters, this bit about Rapunzel, which is actually something that I started writing um, at Mary Baldwin and it really didn't quite ever work in the way that I was writing it. And so it's like, none of that text exists in this play, but the, the relationship between Rapunzel and the Enchantress exists um in this new play so it, that's sort of how the process works of like i might you know th the the play about millennials which is actually it's called um the search for the swamp cabbage man the swamp cabbage man is florida's um uh cryptid yeah um, trust me i know okay <laughs> <laughs> this guy is cryptids oh i i love it um but so it's about three friends who who go out searching for this creature in like a park in the middle of Florida and um, and about sort of how their life evolves. And I've written that play four or five times from the ground up, start to finish each time and never quite hit on exactly what I want. And I think, and that's actually the play that I had read at end of play. Um, that was my last iteration of rewriting it. And I think I've got it. I just now need to sit down and revise this draft 10 or so times before I get it to where I like it. Got to get all those magenta words in there. Exactly. Did you have drafts of that Rapunzel play at Mary Baldwin? Yes, I did. Oh, okay. Because I definitely remember talking to you about that, maybe reading portions of it with you. I'm yeah. glad to know that it made it uh, somewhere else into a into a piece of your work um, yeah like actually... I said none Go of ahead. the none of the words exist but that the idea is there um, and I think it finally lives in a good way in that nice. piece because it it actually originated in the concept of it in undergrad before I was writing plays I took a class on Grimm's fairy tales and as part of the class, we were interpreting them and rewriting some of them and stuff like that. And one of the things that I sort of realized is that there is a maternal reading of the Enchantress in Rapunzel, right? Like she's a surrogate mother. She, you know, it's about sort of the maturation of the child and leaving the parent, the overbearing parent to find the romantic partner but there's also an obsession with hair in a way that is very intimate and so I was like well what if the enchantress isn't a parental figure but is instead like a lover and then like what if this other thing happens but like but that there's a lot of like once I go down that rabbit hole how how do I make those relationships work and mm. what am I doing with this 
lesbian relationship that then like is resisting heteronormativity and like how does that play in um and it didn't work as its own piece which was also very influenced at that time by the work of Sarah Kane and the work of Carrie Dodd's speech yeah, yeah, and like yeah. and it was very lyrical and now here's this like backstory about a woman who like it's sort of escaped the apocalypse by staying in this tower with this woman who who sort of rejected the rest of the scavenger society until they get attacked by scavengers um and so it still keeps the thread of that relationship but it 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 sort of sidesteps some of the the messiness mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um of the original story wow that was deep. That was a lot. That was... <laughs> I've been like, so my brain's kind of been working on it off and on for like, I guess if that class was in 2008, maybe nine. Um, so like 11 or 12 years from, from the, the germ of the idea through to this draft getting written. Yeah. So, I mean, that kind of leads to my other question, uh, and, which I feel like you very much answered, um, but do you find when you're writing, do you like to give yourself deadlines or do you like to give yourself projects that interest you? Are you, which kind of writer do you tend to fall into? Both. Um, I really love the challenges of, particularly for short plays of things that don't, uh, that that are just like, here's a bunch of stuff, throw it into a a pot and see what happens. Um, You've got a deadline, go. Um, (laughs) I like to see what comes up. Um, I also have a lot of projects that are um, things that I I really want to write and I've found a way to write it. Um, like I'm current, well, I haven't really started yet, but I, for one of my assignments at the intensive this summer, I wrote a monologue for what will eventually be my tragedy of Cordelia play. I don't know if that's going to be the name, but it's a sequel to Lear. Um, which I kind of wrote back at Mary Baldwin um, at one point. Uh, it was just like a 10 minute play and, but it needs its own. And I completely lost that during like a hardware failure. Um, but I, I have this play that I want to write that's based off of the fact that like the Holland Sheds Chronicles account of King Lear's life like has Cordelia save him and she becomes queen and then it's her nephews that um are the her nephews depose her in a way that is very parallel to Goneril and Regan um and and Shakespeare kind of conflates her death in prison after she's been captured by them with this earlier thing and so like Shakespeare's playing with all of these things and I'm kind of want to tease it back out and write like sort of assume Shakespeare's play but give it that different ending and go start with okay now here are the two nephews and they're going to start a rebellion and well it sounds like you're making her character richer I'd be really um, interested in seeing slash reading it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, that's a bit of a ways away. Um, but that, <laughs> sure, that first sure. that first monologue that I wrote was a lot of fun. Uh, it was an assignment um, 
to write about something that you'd been thinking about for a long time during the pandemic. And the thing that I had previously said, I've been thinking about this a lot, was family. Um, and Because I moved closer to my family just before the pandemic hit. And then all of a sudden we couldn't even leave our houses. So like, Ugh. what does that mean? Um, so, but I was like, I don't want to write a monologue about like my family. Um, so <laughs> what am I going to write? Because like, I try to keep like a space between between what I'm writing and and my personal that. life, a little bit of a space. Um, that and, was my next question. <laughs> okay, well, we'll get to that in a minute. I, so I wrote this, this, I was like, well, what other thing about family could I write about? And then I was like, oh, right. I have this play that I eventually want to write that's all about like family, family versus dynamics. <laughs> dynastic, you know, yeah. sensibilities. And so it sort of starts, it's very much so in the vein of like, the the cardinal's speech at the beginning of henry V, or um you know like it's very much so like a here is the legacy of our family and here's how we fit in but it's one brother trying to convince the other one to start the rebellion and so it starts with the line what of this consanguinity um and then they outline like if like Cordelia has been gone, like Queen Cordelia has been gone. All we have is our uncle's word that our mother was evil. What if Cordelia is really the problem? Um, and, you know, by the rule of primogeniture, we should be the next in line. She should never have had the throne. Um, and so I, I got to write that monologue about, like, from the point of view of the villains. Um, it also has a little bit of, like, Edmund vibes to it, which I'm excited about. Um, and then we'll see where the rest of it goes. I don't even know where that is on my writing docket at the moment. <laughs> uh, Mike, do you want to ask your question? Because I have uh, I have a proposal. I actually I actually have a, a different question because I think you answered what I was going to ask. Um, my other my my different question, not to get too far off of things here, but. Um, do you primarily think as a playwright or have, do you have any projects where you're like, you know what, this would be a really good series or a really good movie or how do you, how do you approach what you're writing or, or do you just kind of write and then with the intention of it being a play? I definitely write with the intention of what I'm writing to be a play. I have thought about, uh, TV pilot or a screenplay and the thing is that I write about people in the room right like I have I maybe it's because of my Shakespearean training um but I write plays that are are meant to be like audience facing right like mm-hmm. that are that are of the scope that they exist in a finite time in a finite space and I don't really like I, I look at my dialogue and I'm like I just don't know how this idea translates into a digital format now the other thing that I will say though is that I I have written some plays for Zoom um, that 
that exist exclusively in a Zoom space. I gave myself the challenge of writing a play that couldn't be performed on stage. Sure. Um, so I have a play that exists, you know, it's, it's a 10, 15 minute play um, about a couple in a long distance relationship and they're chatting over Zoom and she's making some assumptions. He's kind of being a little vague. And finally you see more of his body than just the Zoom. And you realize, ah, this is suddenly magical realism. And he, he's no longer fully human. Um, and you can't like, it would be much more difficult to stage that because part of the dynamic of that piece is that you find out what has happened to him as he moves into the the camera's field of vision okay. um Interesting. but that... at some point does someone say i can't hear you your mic's off <laughs> No, no, you're muted. No, no, um, that that was not. So it's not a real. It's not a realistic play. No, I got you. No, 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 no. Magical realism. Magical realism. Zoom works all the time. All the time. Zoom works all the time. Doesn't freeze. No mics ever get accidentally muted. It's fine. (laughs) So I have a I have a bit of a proposal because I feel like we're getting towards the end of our our interview here. Uh, Mike and I would love to audition Will Kemp's players to possibly uh, do one of your plays at some point in time. Uh, At least maybe some form of stage reading or if, you know, we get it and we love it, we throw it on stage for a season. Who knows? I I was going to say, yeah, we we know a company that (laughs) would love to do a new piece. Awesome. (laughs) Well... Uh, I I would love to tell you a little bit about wonder of our stage. Let's do it. Um, so I was at Mary Baldwin. It's, Mary Baldwin. The, the one of the first assignments when I was there was who wrote Shakespeare's plays if Shakespeare didn't write them. Um, and the goal is like research the the dictionary of national biography, find someone whose life is parallel matches yeah (laughs) and and force it to work and the assignment is showing you a it's getting you familiar with that database but it's showing you how the easy it is to just manufacture a conspiracy theory about who wrote Shakespeare's place um (laughs) and and certainly I I just want to put out there like any anti-Stratfordian argument is inherently classist. So there we go. Um, oh, oh, man, we got to have you back. We got to have you back. Uh, okay. Uh, I mean, you I, just I guess want I'm... a second slot on AL Pod. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are some that are less so, but, but for the most part, I, I think that there's an inherent classism to saying that a little oh, guy man, that's fascinating. Stratford upon Avon couldn't possibly have written Shakespeare's plays because he just wasn't educated enough. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, that assignment combined with a radio lab episode about um, this 16th century uh, mechanical 
creation that was designed to be a praying monk um, combined in my head to create this idea that Shakespeare is a robot. Um, Shakespeare in this play is a creation by John Dee, um, the John notable Dee. alchemist yeah. and necromancer, um, and is created as a suitor for Queen Elizabeth, not as a playwright. Um, she comes to him in the prologue and says, like, I saw how my sister's marriage, like, ruined her reign. I cannot marry a subject. I will not marry a foreign power. What is the third option here? Um, you have access to all of these things unknown. Like, what do you, what do I do? And he spends 30 years coming up with a plan and he makes something akin to Pinocchio, um, brings it to life with like the philosopher's stone <laughs> and she rejects it. She says, he shakes and starts and knows not what to say. How dare she? Um, and she, John D is not, like he believes that he can make her accept this if he can teach the robot the automaton how to act like a man um so he hires an actor <laughs> and um as, so, as you do i mean yeah yeah that's exactly what you i do. teach i teach people how to be human every day <laughs> i mean yeah kind of <laughs> And so, um, yeah, yeah. So John D brings Richard Burbage back to meet the automaton. The autom like Richard Burbage brings the automaton out into the city a little bit, um, and then uh, and, and they sort of over time figure out a like who who is this person as a person. Back to that at the beginning where I was like, I like to write plays where people like figure out who they are a little bit. Um, this play is very much so about a child who is being forced in one direction by a parental figure um, who then finds a group of friends and art as an outlet for discovering who they really wanna be. Um, and so that is, wonder of our stage um in a nutshell so what are you gonna have us read this is act one scene eight and this is um the first time that Cuthbert Burbage meets the automaton okay um the automaton has a first name at this point William um and there's definitely like a 2001 a space odyssey reference where he's like well you could be you know take on the name henry and we could call you hal wow <laughs> it's it's nerdy on a bunch of levels i'll read cuthbert and i'll Great. let mike be the robot fantastic Yay. and then i will take the part of richard because richard has just a couple of lines here and there in between i i will also read the stage directions all right sorry i need to warm up my my instrument <laughs> <laughs> oh, please do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Red leather, yellow leather. 
big. I mean, we have been talking busting. for like 40 minutes. <laughs> Should be pretty warmed up. Jibber jabber, jibber jabber. No, I'm good. I'm good. Let me sit up straight. <laughs> Part of that was serious. Part of that was an asshole. And I'll let you decide which is which. <laughs> Act one, scene eight of Wonder of Our Stage by Monica Cross. Backstage at the theater, Cuthbert and the automaton in conversation. And so she meant to insult you when she said that you do shake. She meant it to dismiss me from her favor. Why then do you wish to take that as a surname for yourself? Her words compose my earliest memory. And yet, you see, I shake no more. To her mind, I am no more than a doll, a toy, which she feels mocked withal. Still, I have overcome her jeers and become master of myself. Enter Richard Burbage with a round of drinks. What about Shake Bag? There was a cut purse went by such a name. Oh, that is a vile suggestion. If you wish to take the word and twist it to reflect your present circumstances, then pair it with some manly thing. In what way do you mean a manly thing? Think of some viral thing that will imply that you are now the man that she should want. Like shaft or rod or staff, something like that. And spear? Would spear not work just as well? Certainly, it does get to the point. Then it is settled. A pleasure to finally make your acquaintance, William Shakespeare. To William Shakespeare. You said you wanted this experience of drinking. Is it possible to become drunk, you think? Well, I can do all that a man can do. Let's put that to the test. Richard hands the automaton one of the cups of ale. The automaton takes a big swig from the cup. He instantly spews it on the floor. Much have I read of ale and small beer, but nothing could have prepared me for the taste. This vile substance tastes of poisonous brine. You say that now, but we will teach you to drink deep ere you depart. I care not for it. And yet I will sip once more of this strange liquor. For I find that often things at first seem far more bitter than they do with age. The automaton takes another, much smaller, sip, enjoying it a bit more this time. That is more like it. My friend, you will be a man in short order, swearing and swaggering like the rest of us. You should show my brother one of your speeches. What speech should I recite? Why not one of those sonnets that you wrote? Or that speech you penned yesterday? Then here it goes, with thanks for your indulgence. The following speech starts off somewhat rough and mechanical, but as the automaton progresses, he gains more passion and speed. To be or not to be, I there's the point. To die, to sleep, is that all? I all. No to sleep, to dream. I, Mary, there it goes. For in that dream of death, when we awake and born before an everlasting judge from whence no passenger ever returned, 
the undiscovered country at whose sight the happy smile and the accursed damned. But before this, the joyful hope of this, who'd bear the scorns and flattery of the world, scorned by the right rich, the rich cursed of the poor, the widow being oppressed and the orphan wronged, the taste of hunger or a tyrant reign, and thousand more calamities besides to grunt and swear under this weary life when that he may his full quietus make with a bare bodkin. Who would this endure but for a hope of something after death? Which puzzles the brain and doth confound the sense, which make us rather bear those evils we have than fly to others that we know not. I that. Oh, this conscience makes a coward of us all. Are you not impressed? <laughs> you wrote this? Thus in my room I sat, musing on the state which I should emulate of man. Which traits does he retain that I still lack? I ask myself, none other being by. And musing thus I wrote my death, which I must needs hereafter wonder at. Will I die as other humans do? And will I go where everyone believes or to some other where? Where I alone must number out the days unto oblivion. Excellent. I'll drink to that. Oh, I marvel that you did all this. <laughs> your mind is just as wondrous as your form. My brother has hidden you from me in order to keep you to himself. <laughs> Richard, you should have brought him round. He has not kept me hidden. He rather has enlarged me from a captivity which I scarce did comprehend before his coming. It was a jest. He means we should have visited before. I would have understood my brother's interest had he brought you round at first instead of scurrying across town in an oversized cloak. You do not think my appearance a thing too ghastly to behold? I marvel, but there is nothing monstrous in your countenance. Will others think as you do? I do not know, William. I do not know. Come, it grows late and your impatient father will want you home. Hey, oh, that's not in the script. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I felt like I was leaving a bar. I was just in the moment. <laughs> Well, the, the next scene is the end of act one, and that's the scene where it, it very much so is like Mariah in Twelfth Night coming in, you know, or, or you know, Malvolio coming in and being like, what are you mad? You know, sort of, they come in, they come in drunk, and that leads to a fight in which the automaton leaves um, John Dee's house, and having nowhere else to go, they take him in at the theater. Um, and thus begins his acting career and his writing, and yeah, it goes it goes on for quite a bit. Uh, that was a, that was a fun scene. Uh, how did yeah. how did our audition go? I loved it. It was okay. great. <laughs> I I had to channel a little bit of data in there. That's, 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 that, that was my was inspiration. A really big inspiration when I was writing this. <laughs> Queen Elizabeth shows up at the very beginning, and then again, right again towards the very very end. And we get to see her admiration for him as a writer because she doesn't quite know that he is who, that William Shakespeare is who this he is. This automaton, yeah, yeah. So 
so yeah, great. it's it's a lot of fun. Um, I, I really enjoyed writing it. It took me about six years to write. Um, and it was produced um, in 2019. I got a grant to build the costumes. So I made full Elizabethan costumes for everyone. Um, we did a wood grain makeup on the face of the actor that played the automaton. That's awesome. Queen Elizabeth wore this gown that looked like uh, it was, I modeled it after the Ditchley portrait, that white, pic, mm -hmm. the white dress with all of the uh, gemstones on it. Um, so I built that full dress um, and it was really a uh, lovely like it was a just a one week run like every night of the week and it was wonderful to see this up on its feet and really have that life that's awesome well monica i'm certainly uh excited to read the rest of this and maybe one day be in it that'd be fantastic that would be lovely. um <laughs> and i want to thank you so much for coming on and talking to us and sharing your work and and so much of yourself with us and our audience where can our audience uh follow you do you do you have an online social media presence that is public facing i am uh I have a Facebook playwriting page, uh, Monica Cross Playwright. Um, I am on Twitter at The Roaring Girl. I have a website, www.monicacross.com. Um, but the really big place to find me is on the new Play Exchange. Uh, I have a ton of like one minute plays. Uh, couple of 10 minute plays one acts um and then i have three full length plays up there awesome all right well we'll drop all of your information and information to find uh the play exchange in our show notes again thank you so much for being here yeah definitely thank you monica cross that was so much fun blast as always honestly i hope we do get WKP to you know fiddle around with some of her work. Robot That'd be a Shakespeare. Lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talking to Monica, I, I think I think we found what the through line for this season is, and it appears to just be building communities based around our arts and people that enjoy consuming art and in all of its in all of its forms, whether it be traditional or you know new age new age art. Is that a thing? It sounds like you have an audience participation to share with us today. I do. I, I absolutely do. Uh, my audience participation for our listeners is, what are your communities like surrounding the art you do? Um, what's, what functions do they, do they serve for you? Are they sounding boards where you're welcoming, both receiving and giving of criticism of your work? How do you utilize those spaces? And if you want to answer that question, we now have a lot of places to do that. So check us out at Twitter, which is going to be at ActListPod. Like we mentioned earlier, check out our TikToks. Those are at ALPod underscore Mites or Shane, depending on who you want to follow. Follow us both. <laughs> and tell them about our Facebook, Mike. Uh, Facebook.com slash ActivistlessPod. And join the conversation. Peace.
If you like what you hear, leave us a rating. And if you really like what you hear and you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash active listeners pod and become a patron. Our theme music, It's a Trap, was created by Remodel. Thanks for listening.